I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You are listening to Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. Let's talk about race cars. Welcome to Missed Apex iRacing Podcast, where our tagline has been, let's get faster. But I got excited because I am really on a, a love trip with iRacing at the moment. I'm fully in love with it. I'm using up all my spousal credits I'm even pretending I've got a meeting and doing the odd race, or if a meeting gets cancelled, just jumping into the pod that is conveniently located a metre to my left. I won't tell if you don't. I'm joined today by Matt Two Rumpets. Hello, Matt. Hey there, Spanners. I too am enjoying my iRacing journey because the last two weeks in F3, I have not crashed, and this is a good thing. You've not crashed in how long? The last two races. Oh. Uh, so last two swarm races, Nürburgring and um, Alton Park, which is oh, this week. I thought you were going to say like in two weeks. Two races oh. is a terrible boast. It's a horrible boast. Well, compared to what came before, it's a massive improvement. So I will take it. And you won't help us improve in iRacing because you're just a muggy racer slash presenter like me. Uh, when we need improvement and training, uh, we turn to Bradley Philpot. Hello, Brad. Hi, Spanners. How are you doing? Sorry, I said Bradley, didn't I? You're going uh, on brand is Brad because you're still young, relevant and hip. I'm wearing a backwards baseball cap and, yeah, shorten my name to Brad. So when I've heard about your iRacing exploits of late, you've, you've had some adventures. I, I feel like you've been in and out of love with certain series. Yeah, I've, I've had a, a change of focus in iRacing. So in the not too distant past, I was doing a lot of unofficial but big events so these vco events and uh, and various similar things like that kind of invitation things for real life race drivers and that's fizzled out a little bit more recently there just haven't been any that i've been doing Um, and i've been focusing on this iRacing grand prix series that our alex van jean got me hooked on Uh, f1 yeah which is not something i've ever like i never really play f1 games and i've never really touched the the formula one cars in iRacing but i am now really on board with it it's nice as well because I'm actually obviously a Formula One fan and we analyse Formula One on the main Missed Apex podcast um, and there's a lot of parallels and I'm really enjoying kind of driving those things for myself, having to manage the tyres, which I thought I'd hate, having to look at, you know, using the different buttons on the steering wheel and having really clean, fast races with A-licensed drivers. Ah, interesting. I think that's going to make up the bulk of our chat today. We're going to talk about F1, talk a little bit about how to save tyres, because Brad is also a professional tyre tester, as well as being a Nordschleife champion and uh, just a very fast racer in general. Um, but uh, I do want to talk about our, our week in iRacing, because I've expanded my horizon slightly in pursuit of my A licence, so I can come 
and join in on some of those um, those F1 type races. And then at the end of the show, we're going to tag on a recording where we caught up with Alex Van Gene and he told us what is wrong with Senna's if you no longer go for the gap, you are no longer a racing driver, quote. Uh, so this week, as you guys know who listen regularly, we've been doing The Swarm with F3, where us and a bunch of listeners get involved and do the F3 official. And it was Alton Park this week. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that track. It's a slightly less annoying version of like Road Atlanta, where there's loads of blind turns, lots of undulation. And at first, when I first gone to it, I thought, right, this is a Mickey Mouse track. There's hardly any heavy braking zones. It's like a roller coaster. I cannot stand blind corners where I just have to guess which way to go. But I think I've solved it, Matt. I've got a handle on it. The secret is to never, ever slow down for any reason and just assume that you're going to somehow make the corner uh, and you're fine. Yeah, that's pretty much what we all came to the same conclusion on, which is just if you're not doing well, you're simply not going fast enough around the corners. And that almost always either solve the problem because you drove into a barrier or because you just simply went faster as a result. Blind corners, Brad. I They suck the fun out of it for me. I'm sure, you know, you'd say, well, if you were ever going to be a professional racing driver, you have to deal with tracks with undulation and blind corners. But from a sim racer point of view, I generally just can't be bothered with guessing, especially like if there's one blind corner, that's fine. But at Alton Park, it's at least half the corners. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you, Spanners. I also hate blind corners, um, and it, it is just one of those things you have to deal with. It gives an advantage to people who know the track better, which is always annoying sure, when you're doing yeah. a new track. Um, and it's obviously risk because there might be something around that corner that you you haven't seen. But also, don't you feel superior to the what do you call them flatheads? People who use screens rather than yeah, VR, <laughs> yes. um, because at least you've got some kind of depth. At least you can kind of reposition your head to see a bit further around the corner. Oh, than they can. I'd not even thought about that. So, like, if you're a flathead, uh, with the undulation, must affect you more because the screen just forces you to stare down. That must be really annoying. It, you're forced as if you're staring down, but your mind and body feel like you're horizontal. So when you're in VR, if you go down a hill it convinces your your mind that you're going downhill. Yeah, because you're fixed to that view where if the car goes downhill, you're then looking downhill if you have a screen. It actually then flattens the track out. It gives you less information about the, the uh. elevation changes. That's what I've found anyway. Certainly when I've driven tracks that have elevation change that in the past I've gone to in real life and thought, oh, this is way more hilly than it was on, on the sim. With VR, I don't feel that. With VR, I'm like, this is exactly as hilly as it is on the sim because I feel that elevation change. And those blind corners do lead to carnage. So because I didn't have time to do our normal practice session on a Monday this week, uh, and I wanted the social experience of joining the swarm, I also didn't fancy losing a bunch of safety rating. So I didn't do a quali lap, started at the back, ushered anyone around who was behind me so that I was literally crawling watching the action unfold. And in the three races I've done so far, from doing that, I've quickly gone right up to near the top 10 just by really gently picking my way through. I was stationary at turn one in the last official race I did for about 20 seconds, waiting for everyone to sort themselves out. Then I picked my way through and by lap two, I was in 12th place, which um. I'm not sure how thrilling that is, but that was pretty good for my my eye rating and safety rating. If you're pursuing safety rating by racing Formula Three at Alton Park, <laughs> you are very very brave um, because that is not something I would be I would be risking. So okay, so I'm I'm trying to get my A license. I've done 
the I'm eligible with the races. I've done my MPR or whatever it is, races. So where do you suggest that I go for safety rating on road? So are you at A yet or are you still? No, I need to get to four safety rating to be automatic promotion. I'm at 3.65 right now. There are certainly circuits which lend themselves to to less contact. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get fewer incident points, though, because somewhere like Silverstone, for example, where there's plenty of room, there's lots of space, even in a very fast car, you can get side by side with several cars. And if you go off the track, you're probably going to be okay. You're probably not going to hit the barrier. If, but unless you get it's a really one X, yeah. But yeah, you can get one Xs frequently from running a bit wider if you're pushing for lap time, places like Cops um, and on the exit of Stowe, that kind of place where you, yeah. you don't really feel like you've gone that wide, but suddenly you've got a one X. Spa. Spa is the same. Every corner is a one X. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if you're driving in mind, driving with safety rating in mind, you're probably not pushing quite no. like that. So you can probably just keep it within the confines. So my advice would be race at tracks if if they're available in the series you want to do, where they are kind of like Formula One tracks with lots of runoff and lots of space. Basically, you want a long track with a lot of turns in it and a long race. I mean, uh, my A license came entirely by accident. Uh, just after doing either Le Mans or whatever my second Enduro was, I just finished it Looked at the results and I was like, oh, look at that. I've got an A license now. What a surprise. And it's just because, you know, I'd driven three hours, had, you know, four or five contact points and the math just works out at that point. You gain a lot of safety rating and then they promote you. So I do find that safety rating just comes. If you think, oh, I need safety rating, all you have to do is just not wreck with people, wait for a little while and and it will turn up. What I found more challenging was doing the qualifying races for the A license. And I looked at the selection of B-licensed races that would qualify you. And quite handily, next to the registry uh, button, there's a little green arrow if that qualifies as one of your four races to qualify for the next license up. So I looked at the selection, and I have to admit, it wasn't inspiring, and I had to buy content for for all the, the options. I'd previously done some, some IMSA, some multi-class, and I know Mist Apex, we want to get more involved in doing those kind of things so we can do the big ticket events like Daytona, etc., and do these multi-class races. And Matt, I know you love them, but the two IMSA races I did at Sabring, I, I found it so odd that I spent more time with cars much faster or much slower than I did with cars I was actually racing. And the joy didn't spark yet. So I don't know what I'm missing, but I just went, I don't, I don't understand why this is good. Well, if I may elucidate, because I, I, I did I did see Ring as well, and we didn't have GT3s in our split. It was just GTEs and P2s. But in my first stint, which is a double, uh, I went from 17th to 13th, including catching the guy in 13th and having a three, four, five lap battle with him as P2s were winding their way between us. So trying to catch someone trying to let people past. And my most exciting moments ever in multi-class would come if, if I was overtaking someone tr- and trying to pass slower cars and also trying to deal with faster cars, sometimes in the very, very same corner. It's just an entirely different mental balance. And you have to go out and really concentrate. So for the whole first three quarters of my double stint, it was literally just I'm putting in a lap time within this half second within this half second, within this half second, and watching the relative creep down on the person I was catching. 
until I finally caught them over that long of a distance. Okay, were you so, pushing so, or were you, you driving to a Delta? Uh, I was driving to a Delta, but that Delta was, was a bit of a push Delta okay. for me. I was, I was definitely like, I'm going to put it at the top end of where I feel comfortable and try and keep it there. So am I just not being a grown up, Brad, when I'm like, but I want to try and, uh, you know, go as, you're meant to go as fast as you can every lap. And sometimes, well, I mean, I know F1 drivers have to do it. We'll get onto that. But going, oh, I'm going to drive to this sensible delta because it's endurance and because I'm just reducing the risk of crashing because I'm driving for a really, really long time. I'm yet to get the bug of that or, or understand why that's better. It's That's just a very different style of racing to some of the things that maybe you're used to or some of the things you you aim for like with the formula three sprint races yeah or go-karts or or carts yeah although this is something we've not managed to get you involved with yet because it's not been that long since you've been doing karting when only the last couple of years yeah but a lot of us on this panel do endurance kart races and and love it for the same things that matt was just describing when he uh, was racing at sebring and you know, having different classes. I mean, we've got to get you in the British 24-hour kart race, for example, at some point in the next couple of years before you're too old to do it and enjoy it. Um, and and you do, I, I don't know how to describe, why Why is it fun? Okay, I think hang on, can because- I ask a question about the karting? So in sim racing, I notoriously go quite conservative anyway. Actually, in karting, I am trying to go as fast as I can every lap and I feel a lot more, more confident. My bum's telling me if I'm going to crash or not. So if I was to do these endurances with you, would you be, in my stint, would you be telling me to be pushing hard every lap or would you be like no calm down look just just go for 59s or whatever when i'm capable of 57s yeah that's a really good question actually in in the kind of karting we would be doing uh, in rental kart endurance races there is not very much there's no reason really to go any slower than you can other than preserving your own physical well-being right if, if you're capable of doing a, yeah, a stint yeah, or a double enough. stint or whatever then yeah you, you are going to push as hard as you can so maybe actually that's a defeater because you would enjoy that because it is kind of just a really long sprint race. Um, in iRacing, because it's simulating real world yeah. car racing, there are obviously other factors like tire wear, like um, like damage, which you're not really going to encounter if you were to do a, an endurance kart race with us unless you had a really big crash. So so you're right, actually, that it is quite different. It is a lot more like real car endurance racing. So. Matt, the unfair question would be, do you enjoy that more because you're having to push for that ultimate lap time less? That would be the cruel, unfair question. Well, it's it's not a properly phrased question because no one, even in a sprint race, goes out and runs quali pace every single lap. You can't because you're having to deal with other cars. But I enjoy the focus and concentration required to turn faultlessly a lot of laps in a very tiny margin. And I really enjoy the fact that by running your own pace with people who are faster and slower on the same team, you can still help a strategy come good, even if you're not alien level. Okay. So Alex Van Jean has mentioned this quite a lot of times. One of the reasons he enjoys doing the the Grand Prix series on iRacing is because he knows he's not the outright fastest driver, but because there are other elements which contribute to your success, like choosing the right strategy, looking after the tires, knowing when to pick your battles with other cars, avoiding damage, that kind of thing. You can have a good result in a different way. 
Um, and, and in an endurance race, whether you're in a GT3 or an LMP2 or whatever it is, it's the same kind of thing. You, you don't have to actually be the fastest. It's, you, there's that element in qualifying. You're still pushing for a fast lap time in qualifying. So at some point in the, the weekend, the virtual weekend, you are, you are also putting a focus on going really fast. But come the race, that helps you if you're really fast, but there are other skills you can draw upon if maybe you're not just the fastest driver out there. So maybe that's why um, people really enjoy yeah. endurance racing. It's certainly something I enjoy. I mean, Sergio Perez has openly in F1 said, I'm not the fastest driver in Formula One, but I he likes the game of it. He likes the strategy of it. And that would be a good segue into the F1 chat. I just I quickly want to cover the last thing I did to go towards this F1 F1 license, A-class license, which is I jumped on the VRS GT3 series. So it was Lime Rock, which I own, and I don't love Lime Rock necessarily. However, I thought it would be more useful to buy a car than a track. All the other options, I had to buy a track, and I wasn't interested in buying a track. So I got the Mercedes AMG uh, GT3 because uh, they gave me two options. They said the lads in the whatsapp chat they said if you want a, a a nimble quick car you can chuck around get one of the mid-engine cars or if you want a, a tank that's understeery but fast go for the mercedes and i was like yeah that's that suits me that i'll do that because i don't mind a bit of understeer because you just go a bit slower don't you it felt like a nice leisurely dad pace um but that was an interesting series and i enjoyed that way more than i thought than i thought i was going to around lime rock when you watch say, touring cars or GT cars, when you're used to watching single-seaters, it can sometimes feel like a, a chain. Or when you watch BTCC, they can seem like they're nose-to-tail, even round sharp corners. So it feels like it's less dynamic. But when you're in it, and I mean, you've done BTCC as well, Brad, when you're in it and nose-to-tail, that is such a different type of racing than what we've been doing with the single-seaters. But I actually found it quite therapeutic i i enjoyed it much more than i thought i was going to in a big long chain of gt3 cars yeah you don't have the same downforce loss as you would yes. in a in a single seater following other cars so you can kind of forget that element you don't need to worry about backing off through a fast corner because you don't have as much grip as you would otherwise have that's negligible um but what you do have is a lack of visibility a lot of the time you're already restricted in your visibility because you're inside a car and then you've got a giant box of another car in front of you which is also stopping you from seeing what's coming up next and potentially more than one other car around you um and the car is capable of going through the corner less quickly than generally most single seaters so you've got less grip to play with as well there's just a whole load of other elements at play but you've still got the concertina effect so although they're nose to tail the car in front will still accelerate earlier than you will and break before you break and all that kind of thing so you still have to take that into account and, and not run into them yeah and then overtaking is it's just it's a whole different ball game uh, that i find found there was a lot of mind games there so i would routinely make sure i was showing my nose or not showing my nose, and it was very much like a, a hand of poker. You know, were you bluffing? Were you not bluffing? Can I force an error by being really conservative and just staying completely parallel to them? And then, even when I have no intention of making a move, fill their mirror and see if I can get them to. It was so. It was fun. I just really enjoyed it. It was quite strategic. Legitimate tactics. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Have you have you experienced that VRS, Matt? Uh, yeah, uh, we did. I did uh, one of the endurance VRS. Um, uh, I've done a couple of them. And yeah, when you catch someone and you're trying to overtake them and you're in the same class and there's not a lot between you, it 
like I said, at Sebring, I had a multi-lap battle with a guy. I was probably two or three tenths faster a lap then before I finally provoked him into a, enough of a mistake. I could get inside of him going into turn one, which was very exciting. Ooh, turn one Sebring, yeah. Oh, when you, where you have grip until it just decides randomly that you don't. Exactly. So, so yeah, so you, you get these moments and, and they're really enjoyable. And it is, as you say, it's a very different thing to the way you would race in a single seater. All right. Enough dancing around the fire. Formula One. I, I bought it late at night, the car, and I try not to do impulse iRacing purchases of content, but basically you and Van Jean bullied me and made me do it. It was three weeks before I found a, a spot available to go, right, I'm just going to jump in and do Silverstone because that's where the officials are this week, yeah. I believe. So, so I just jumped in and I, and I did it. It's a track I know well. Uh, it's obviously an iconic track and I've actually driven on it in real life. And um, I, I, I thought, right, okay, let's just go for it and do it. I was surprised. It is brilliant. It does feel amazing, but it felt a bit computer gamey. And that was my first thought. Whereas other cars in iRacing haven't felt computer gamey. This, it almost felt unreal. And I wondered if it was just because it's so fast and so grippy and so different from anything else I've done in, in iRacing, that for a second I was removed from the, the sim, you know, like taken out of the movie almost. Does that make sense, Brad? It definitely makes sense. And I, I just point out that the faster the real-life race car you get, generally the more computer gamey they feel in real life as well. Oh. I've driven, obviously, <laughs> lots and lots of different types of race car in, in my life. And the faster ones are the ones which seem to more closely relate to a simulator. The inputs are more simple because there's so much grip. The, you've got things like you know good paddle shift, You've got brakes which work really well, really sticky tires, yeah. downforce. The cars just do what you tell them to more in a way that something like the Peugeot that you drove around Silverstone, for yeah. example, definitely in would the wet. not. Or the Nova Especially that, in the wet, that Matt yeah. drove around Silverstone. They're not made to go fast, really, and they're on probably road tires, and you're driving them faster than they're designed to go. And so they feel kind of out of their depth when you're on the limit, and you have to do quite a lot of stuff to, to keep them going fast. Obviously, you still have to drive a, a Formula One car mm. or, or any fast race car correctly, but the way they respond to you, because they are so immediate and they've got so much grip, or certainly more than you're expecting if you've not done it before, uh, they they feel they do feel like a game. And I've experienced that myself, even after having driven other race cars. Yeah. So you've got into a real life car and gone, this feels un unreal. But that, that's a testament to the engineering skill and cash that goes into the higher level of race cars, aren't they? So, so like Formula One cars are not designed to be a driver challenge necessarily. Necessarily, They are designed to be the best, most competitive car. And the more responsive you make it to the driver, the, the more you're going to do well and go up the table and, and win money. Yeah, exactly. And I, I hope you did enjoy driving that Formula One car because I really want to badger you into doing more of it. Because I, 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 I yeah. think the closer you get to the limit the the less gamey it will feel and the more you'll have to be thinking about it and exactly. doing exactly so at my limited i only literally did five laps and in my head i tried because i'm a bit of a fantasist i was like right i'm gonna pretend that i'm like william story and i've hired um uh, you know one of those track experience days and then i'm gonna pretend that it was a collaboration with renault and 
so in my head, I was like, okay, treat this like you would treat uh, a real experience in an F1 car. And from what I've heard, because you can just buy those experiences for a few thousand pounds if you have a few thousand pounds to spare. What I've heard is they only let you do three hot laps because that's the point at which people get a bit too cocky and a bit too confident. So in my make-believe world, this was fully real. And in that make-believe world, I got nowhere near the limit. So you're right. Uh, for the inputs I was given it, the car could completely handle everything I wanted it to. Um, so yes, I do want to do more. And that's why I've been working towards this A license. But what I'm really interested in is how how it translates to the officials. Do those races, the IGP, do they go official? Yes, they do. Right. Normally <clears throat> uh, once per day or two or three times per day, depending on the day. So I actually really like this because unlike lots of series, Formula Renault or Formula 3 in particular, where basically every race you enter, the results are going to count. So if something goes wrong, you're going to lose I rating or you're going to lose safety rating. Yeah. And if it goes well, you'll gain. These Formula 1 races, these I, I racing G Grand Prix races, they quite often don't have very much participation in the morning, around lunchtime. As you get to the evening, particularly at the weekend, you get a lot of people doing them. Those are the ones that go official. All the others you can use as a practice without having to just go into a practice session and just drive laps. You can go into, uh, you can enter a race. There might be two or three people in it. Serious, you know, if, that low. if I crash, it doesn't matter. So I've, I've been the only person in the race frequently. And it's been brilliant because it's like a private test session. It's all set up for you. You get to do the race. You get to do qualifying, obviously. The yeah. race starts. You get to run your strategy. And I've used this week at Silverstone, actually, to, to try different strategies push a bit harder at the start, simulate what would happen if, if I had to make an undercut. So I push you know, very hard immediately after a pit stop and see if I can still get those tires to the end of the race or whether maybe I need to take it a bit more easy to eke them out. And then when it does go official, you already know. You've driven in exactly the same conditions and you just know what to expect. So they're really great for that. I, I wonder I wonder if we could um, put a session together with our, our Mist Apex iRacing crew and uh, Rulemont of drivers and just say, right, we're going to put up an F1 session where it doesn't matter what license you've got, you just need the content, presumably Silverstone, and see if people wanted to to try that out with me. Uh, but when you and the guys have been talking about your experience in this IGP series, tyre saving has come up a lot. And, and in the same vein that I'm not thrilled by Matt going, oh, it's so exciting, you can drive to a Delta. Um, I'm also not thrilled at the prospect of trying to save tyres and make, it, make them manage through a stint in the f3 i i went back to the pits because that's the only way you can find out what your tire wear is and i i was actually stunned to find out that the tire wear was like 95 percent. essentially the f3 tires don't wear at all so you're not having to worry about that when you think your tires have gone you've probably just overcooked them so this element of tire saving in f1 tell me tell me why i'm wrong when i say that that sounds like a rubbish way to spend my time so first of all, as you know, and as I stated on this very podcast, I also didn't didn't think that would be very good. Yes. I thought that would be annoying. And I actually kind of stand by it a bit because my the side of this that I enjoy the most is just pushing hard and yeah. trying to get fast laps. But my uh, I'm satisfied in that area because there is still a qualifying session and because driving fast still comes into it. But you're right. There is a tire saving element because you have several compounds you've got three compounds basically soft medium and hard they don't change whether they're a c4 or whatever like in real formula one they are just the soft medium and hard all the different tracks and during your practice you can work out 
how you're going to get through the race, whether you're going to do a full race on hard tires, which probably won't be the fastest way because they'll be so much slower than the other compounds, whether you can do a soft stint and then change tires in the middle and go for another soft or any combination of those. Quite often, soft and soft is actually the fastest combination. And you have to start the race on the same compound that you qualified on. So generally, people do start on softs. Although actually, I've seen some, I have seen some variation at Silverstone this week. But the point is, once you've worked that out, once you've, you've chosen your strategy, you then have to obviously make those tires get to the end of the race in the most efficient and fastest way possible, which may well involve some tire saving. And by tire saving, I mean driving in a way which allows them to get to the get to the point you need them to, whether it's a pit stop or the end of the race, without being so slow that you might as well have gone for the next hardest compound up. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and this is exactly the reason I have never done one of these races because the longest I've ever gotten a set of tires to last is maybe 10 or 11 laps before I see the meatball flag. And I'm surprised to find out that I've only got 7% left on my front left tire at Barcelona, for example. How do you save tires? That is the question I want you to answer. Yeah, man, let's hear it. Okay, so this is something I've been thinking, knowing I was coming on this podcast and this was potentially one of the topics. This is something I've been trying to think about the best way to articulate. And, and as you know, obviously in my normal job, I am, I'm tire testing. So there's various elements of having to treat tires in a certain way. Let's boil it down to, to the most simplistic version. You will preserve your tires better by avoiding handling imbalances, understeer and oversteer. So we've already spoken in the past about how to notice, how to recognize understeer, for example, and how to avoid it and correct it. And the same with oversteer. And saving your tires is basically that, but just really paying attention to it. So whereas on a on a lap where tire saving isn't a problem or in a stint where tire saving isn't a problem, if you have some understeer or some oversteer, it may well cost you lap time. But if you fix it quick enough, it might actually be the quickest way, you know, dancing on that limit where you're always slightly over the limit on the front axle, the rear axle. Maybe that's the quickest way around. And, you know, you've got to be pushing that hard to be fast when you're trying to actively save tires you're just much more conscious of not letting those moments happen. If you allow the front tires to, to have an understeer moment, that's a moment where they were really wearing, you know, you were really scrubbing them in that moment. If you allow the car to have a moment of oversteer, likewise, the rear is really wearing. If it's on the exit of a corner, obviously spinning the wheels, you're, you're really scrubbing them. So those are the things to avoid. And we can get into a little bit more detail about yeah. how to actually stop yeah, yeah, that yeah. from ever happening. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, we, we've talked about how to avoid understeer and how to avoid oversteer. So you're just constantly looking at, like, for example, like you got me to turn the volume up of the tires. So what I've done is I've... I've turned my overall volume up. I've reduced the engine sounds and all the other sounds and left the tire sounds as the highest sound in the in the iRacing UI. So I guess these are my biggest weapons in tire wear. I would say that, but probably even more than that, is the sensation you get through your force feedback. That's probably the biggest, yeah. um, the biggest indicator of what's happening, in particular with the front tires, but obviously if you're having oversteer, it's, it's also... I'm going to be telling you that through the steering wheel. So yeah. there are some key things you have to do, like some real, um, some real things that as a driver you have to be aware of and make sure you're doing correctly every corner of every lap. So I'll, let's go through them. First of all, you need to never lock the tires. If you if you're trying to preserve the tires, especially in this iRacing Grand Prix car where you're yeah. on a very soft set of softs, locking the tires will absolutely destroy your stint. Sorry, okay, Stanley, so iRacing iRacing doesn't do flat spots, does it? So, but it no. just will just increase the temperature. It, it doesn't do flat spots. It will increase the temperature, but importantly, it will increase the wear very fast. So ah. if you can do a lap and in a normal lap, it maybe uses 2% tire wear on your front left. If you lock that front left, you might lose 5% in that lockup on its own. And you know, oh, the longer wow. the lockup, the longer you'll, you'll be losing percentage. You could quite often, I've, I've entered the pit lane uh, at the end of a stint with maybe 10% tire wear remaining. And I've had zero by the time I've got to my pit box because I've locked up at the at the pit entry line. So, so hang you, on, in normal when when we're doing like F three and stuff, we don't see live telemetry of our tire wear. In this F one, do you see your tire wear? In no, 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 you don't. But I've done enough stints that, and I've left the car and looked in the garage enough times to know what kind of percentage I should have at different times. Wow! And you can actually you get used to feeling it. I know if I'm if I'm down to one percent or onto zero before the meatball flag appears because you can really feel the steering has gone light. You can't, you turn the wheel to a smaller steering angle and it begins going light earlier. Whereas when the tires are fresh, you can wind on the steering lock and you've got heavy feedback through the steering all the way up to the apex. Once they start wearing down and you really feel this, if you drive a full stint on the soft spanners, yeah. once you really start wearing those tires down, they're down to maybe 15, 20%. You put in, 15 or 20 degrees of steering lock and suddenly the steering wheel starts to go light in your hands in exactly the same way as it would on a real set of tires that were worn out there's just not enough grip being generated by those front tires to to actually give you the the weight through the steering wheel and that's a real good way of of 
knowing you can't turn any more than that. If you start uh, mm. going past that, if you start pushing into the area where it's light, you will just drop your tire wear off the edge of a cliff. You'll you'll scrub them and destroy them. So so because you haven't got the grip to turn in, you end up understeering. So you yeah. apply more steering lock, which if you panic and apply more steering lock, you're going to keep pushing forward with the tires at an angle they don't want to go generating more tire wear um this already sounds like a a nightmare i've got a couple of questions around this so i've got three in fact let's start with this across iRacing do most series have noticeable tire wear because in f3 i don't think about it when i did the vrs with the gt3 towards the end of my stint i found i was having to brake earlier because I was un- understeering and I wasn't getting that grip in. So h- how much of a factor is, is tyre wear generally in iRacing? Has, has F1 just suddenly introduced it as this big kind of big ticket thing because F1 is so famous now as a as a tyre preservation series? So in, in all of the cars, tyre wear will be a factor. As you mentioned, in the Formula 3s or, or cars with tyres, which the races are short enough that the tyre wear isn't a factor, it's not very obvious. And quite often... I only noticed that the tyres are warm because the lap times are are dropping off. Whereas in the Formula One, it really is an obvious fit and it's designed into it in the same way that real Formula One, yeah, like you mentioned, tyre wear is kind of a feature of the sport and people are trying to go as fast as they can without running out of tyres and do the quickest strategy. It's much more obvious uh, and that's what I've found since doing it. But I quite like it because I'm not questioning, am I going a bit slower because the tires are wearing, you can really feel the steering is getting lighter in certain corners. I'd probably best keep it at, at that kind of level and not push past it uh, and run out of tires two laps before I need to pit. That Matt, so it is definitely more obvious. Other yeah. series have a similar thing to a lesser extent. Matt, you must be in heaven here. When we do our F1 show, all you bang on about is tire strategy. I can't believe that you're not all in on this. Uh, well, just simply because I don't. I think I have the skill to manage the tires and be competitive. Otherwise, yeah, I, I, I can probably drive a mid-packish qualifying time, mid to back, because most of the guys there will have higher I rating than me. But I, I haven't yet felt satisfied with my ability to manage the tires. Nevertheless, or, or never mind calculate, like, at what point do I need to get off of these tires? When am I losing too much time? And do I need to come in for a new one? That was my second question. So inevitably, we're going to have tyres with less grip that perform less well. And we're not going to just Lewis Hamilton it and be like, man, there's not perfect performance. I would need to desperately get off these tyres. So there is a period where you are driving with suboptimal tyres, I assume. How do we do that? Yeah, so you you just basically make sure that you uh, you never you never push into this scrub we've been talking about. And you're yeah. very aware of how smooth your steering movements are, how deliberate your braking events are without pushing to the limit. You obviously get used to what the absolute limit is when you're doing qualifying practice or just really pushing hard. And you just wind it in a bit from that. You'll never, it, first of all, if you're pushing to the limit, the tires are just going to wear out faster anyway. But the biggest thing is you've got this risk of having an immediate lockup or something like a slide, which then, which then uses a lot of tire life in a moment. So you're trying to avoid both of those things, excessive normal yeah. wear by just pushing a bit too hard and also lock up slides, spins, all that kind of thing, which will which will ruin it. So that's the main thing, being very, very smooth, being very deliberate, braking a bit more progressively and gently than you might do 
on a real push lap and obviously accelerating smoothly, trying to do things, the the inputs, the steering inputs, the braking, the acceleration, and trying to do those things whilst the steering wheel is as straight as possible. If you're suffering with traction, if you feel the rear tires are going away, you keep getting oversteer moments on the exits of the corners, you need to introduce the throttle even more smoothly and wait until the steering is even straighter. And this is a thing which is only going to get worse. It's not like the tires come back. Once they start getting a bit slippery, they're going to get worse and worse the more abusive you are with the input. So you just have to be aware of that and be gentle with it. For argument's sake then, uh, IGP, F1 in iRacing and Formula 1 are exactly the same. Just for argument's sake, they're exactly the same. There's no difference at all. So we often hear on on the team radios in Formula 1, okay, um, we need to get this guy now. You need to give it everything. You need to push now or um, it hammer time or you need to avoid an undercut. You have that option in your bag, even though you're tire saving, even though you're instead of normally like, okay, oversteer, you risk sliding off for me. Uh, understeer, I risk pushing off the end of the track or not making the apex. Here we risk tire wear. That's why we're trying to avoid those things. Is it part of the strategy of this F1 IGP that you do have the ability to go, okay, I'm a third of the way into the stint, but I need to clear this guy. Let's go. Yes, absolutely. And I've had this exact same thing just yesterday when I did a race. You, you can, you've got a, a finite amount of virtual rubber to use. And you can choose where to use that. If you think it's going to be more beneficial to push right now, get past this guy so you're not sat in his dirty air wearing your tires even more badly. You're obviously going to use a lot of tire in that short period, pushing hard, you know, using a less than ideal line, scrubbing the tires. But once you're past that person, you can then choose, I'm actually going to go even more gently than I would have been saving before. You've got track position. Yes. You've, you've used your allocated amount of rubber in a different area. And likewise, you can push hard just before a pit stop. You could choose to pit a little bit early. I've had times where I know my ideal pit stop is, say, lap 16. That's when I really want to be stopping to maximize my tire life and have the best lap times. But if I pit on lap 14 and I just I just back myself to really tire save in the second stint, I'm going to get an undercut on that guy I'm chasing. He's, he's a second and a half in front. If I pit now and he pits in two laps, I'm going to be a second and a half, two seconds quicker than him for two laps. I'm going to come out in front. Yes, I've then got older tires, but if I can yeah. just hold him up for a few <laughs> laps, I've got the track position. He'll be wearing his tires and I'll just eke it out and worry about that later. When I, when I get to the end of the race, let's see. But you can use those different options yeah. in, in your armory. See, Matt, I'm listening to this and I'm just thinking, I don't think I'm good enough to do all of that. Yeah, well, this is this is my concern too. Like, I want to be sure I can put in uh, the number of laps I want to to make a strategy work. But when you think about it in in advance, how do you work out where you want your pit stop to be, and how do you how do you change those calculations in the middle of the race? I'm assuming you don't have just like an Excel spreadsheet open, like so, your normal race engineer would do. So, like, sort of like what's your hack for dealing with that? Yeah, you're right. You don't you don't have Bono there. You don't have a, an engineering team or a strategy team helping you. And you do have to work some of this out for yourself. And it gives you a good appreciation for when you're watching Formula One. One thing you do have, which in real life racing you don't tend to have, is a live gap lap time delta to all the other cars. So if you've done some practice and you will need to do considerable practice for this kind of series, you'll know that having a pit stop costs me 30 seconds. You know, maybe 20 seconds on the lap you come into the pits, 10 seconds on the next lap, 30 seconds total. 
and you're looking at the gaps for where you can filter out. Because when you're doing your undercut, for example, you don't want to come out on fresh tires behind a group of people who have gone on mediums for the first stint and they're going to be going slow and long and you're going to have to fight past each of them. So you can look at these gaps and think, well, if I wait a couple more laps, I'll be, I'm pulling away from them at half a second a lap. I'll just be in front of them when I leave the pits. That's when I'll pit. So that's one area, but you obviously were talking about how to know the ideal um, compromise. Yeah. How to set your strategy before you start the race. Yeah. So there's no, you don't have to commit to anything before the start of the race, aside from the tire type that you're starting on. If you qualify on soft, you're going to start the race on soft and not the same set either. So they are fresh tires at the start of the race. You will have done the practice just to work out when you, obviously you can change the way you drive, but generally when I'm driving at my normal speed, the tires start to run out of life at X lap. I lose this many seconds per lap versus if I go on the mediums, maybe they're three tenths slower per lap, but I can go a few more laps and then I can put the softs on at the end. Basically it's trial and error. You need to do it. You need to drive the car and see what works best. And not everyone's got the time to do this. Not everyone can do a, they're basically one hour races. So not everybody can set aside an hour in the middle of the day just to go and do a race practice on their own. And a lot of people will probably be bored doing it. (laughs) Alex Van Jean does this on the fly, but I appreciate not everybody has the time or the patience to do that. So that's certainly a, a benefit. If you, if you can sit down and just run a race on your own, if you care about doing well enough that you can put aside the boredom, that's how you work out the best strategy. Or you can just ask people because a lot of people will give advice. There are some really good groups, Discord, Facebook, that kind of thing, where the other drivers who tend to be quite regular will just tell you. Okay. I have one more question, which is you mentioned uh, you mentioned being able to see the gap to all of the drivers. I don't get that in my relative box. How, how do you get that information uh, on your screen while you're in VR? Really? It's just one of the black boxes. So you've got all the different black boxes you can cycle through. One is relative gaps to everyone. One is the, the obviously like the total gaps between the field. And then obviously you've got your pit box. Your, uh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, Brad. <laughs> I know why Matt's asking this question. When you go to the standings tab, you always feature there because it's the top seven. Me and Matt rarely feature in that. So we would not have the gaps Oh, you, you still can. You can look at anybody. Um, you just scroll up and down on an arrow. Button. Oh, so You can always look that. down further or up. You're right, though. It's the people immediately around you you tend to worry about. But if I'm looking for someone 30 seconds back that I don't want to come out behind, I will click on my little arrows on my steering wheel to just look down right. a bit further. I didn't know you could map that to your button. So I knew on the relative, you could see the physical tracks around you, but they might be red or blue because you're lapping or, or being lapped. I didn't know you could go to the standings and also scroll down down that. Well, I learned a thing. That's really useful. There we go. I yeah. think question answered, Matt. I think uh, more than anything, this is the most enthused I've heard you talk about iRacing for, for a while. So you're clearly buzzing off of this F1 experience. For me, this is great. I'm really enjoying it. And it's the kind of racing I like because I've got quite a good mix of having to be fast, having to think about other things, the strategy element. Also on Saturday nights, the races are, bro- well, the top split is broadcast. So there's an excellent um, coverage ah. package that goes on, which is quite cool. I can share that link. So that's quite nice. Generally, if you're over two and a half thousand I rating, you tend to get in that as well. Um, so there's a few things that I like, but I totally appreciate this might not be for everyone. Some people will have been listening to this thinking, <laughs> I do not want to do those things. We haven't even gotten into 
um, energy management or DRS and all that kind of thing. And normally those things I absolutely hate, but they're pretty simple in this series, really. Nothing like as complicated as it would be in real life. And so once you've done it a few times, you don't really think about them. Okay, so what I think I might do is I might throw open an open practice session at some point and uh, invite our, our normal Swarm and Mist Apex series participants to just jump in. Would that be something that's okay? And just do different levels of, of testing and just trying it out. I think that'd be really cool. And I'd love to give some kind of coaching to people on a track that we've been doing that week. So Silverstone this week, for example. Oh, we will all definitely be nagging you about what to do. Go and follow Brad's YouTube channel by searching for Brad Philpot on YouTube. Uh, Follow Brad on Twitter uh, at Bradley Philpot. It is that, isn't it? At Bradley. Yep. Okay, so it's still the old person version of your name. Yep. In case you haven't changed that yet, uh, you can follow Matt at MattPT55, the show at iRacing Podcast. Uh, we are going to finish the show by checking in with Alex Van Jean. He has an issue with the Ayrton Senna quote, if you no longer go for a gap, you are no longer a racing driver. He feels that this has affected racing at every level in a negative way. And he starts off by summarising why. I have an admiration for Senna for what he did at the time. Um, but I think with a lot of, I think it can be seen for a lot of older drivers now is when you look back at some of the things they did and the way they went about certain things that they wouldn't quite fly today. Um, and one goes for that saying, which the line is, if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you are no longer a racing driver. And the problem I and a lot of racers have with that quote is it's not true. Um, because it's the first step in how you make an overtake. So the gap being there is like, right, can I now go for that gap? Um, But the problem is what you've got now is you've got people who just hear that quote and think, oh, well, there's a gap there. I'll throw myself at it, even if I'm 100 yards back, and then wonder why they got in an accident and blame the car they hit. And and gap is a really kind of, ambiguous phrase as well so anytime you're near the car in front and racing if they're on the outside and they naturally would take the apex if you're coming you know down the inside no matter where you are there is always theoretically a gap between the car the defending car on the outside and the apex and in nearly every race situation if you just don't break you will beat the defending car to the corner so what you end up getting is a lot of people using the senna quote as a as an excuse basically to to do ridiculous dives down the inside yeah define gap is the statement i tend to go with which is yes there was a gap 300 meters before the corner but by the time i got there the gap wasn't there because i'm in it um and it's that whole case of point of when you can when you look at constructing an overtake yes you look for the gap then you look at your overspeed compared to the car in front. Then you look at the corner that is coming up in front of you. Because if it's going off in a different direction, there's no point going for that gap. You might as well save it for something else. Um, but I also think I think the quote is misunderstood more than the fact that the quote is wrong. Because I think what it is, is he doesn't mean I'll just go for any gap. And yes, he was an opportunity and went for lots of gaps that maybe he shouldn't have. But I think what he thinks is, if the opportunity is there, I'm going to take it there and then and I won't wait. 
Uh, but Matt, that is certainly not how it's taken generally, is it? When, when people quote it in on the internet and in races or to defend a, a sim racing or karting move, that, that's that's not what they mean. No, it's really not. Although I will admit that my first exposure to that quote, because I, I was not observing Formula One at the time he was racing, mostly because I didn't have a television. You're so my old. understanding of it is like, he's basically, it seemed like he's saying, listen, if if you are racing and you have an opportunity to get next to in battle or get ahead of the driver in front of you and you don't take it, you're not racing any longer. And I think clearly he's talking about single seaters because it can be a different story in endurance racing. But that caveat aside, that was always sort of how I understood it. And obviously, as you've mentioned to me before, Matt, it's not his first language. So so things can be simplified when you're trying to communicate in in another language. But that does raise the question from our point of view as spectators when we're judging an incident because at Missed Apex podcast we we always like to assign some blame or we like to know who's responsible and who's at fault and also as go-kartists and sim racers when should we go for a gap so we can look at this from the the attacking and the de- defending point of view what's your clear signal Alex I mean you are you have a reputation as being one of the more aggressive racers in our posse What's your signal? And let's talk about, you know, a, a very simple corner. We're coming coming to a, a hairpin in a heavy braking zone. When do you start to sense that this is the gap to go for? This is the time to lunge? Well, before that, it depends on the equipment you're in. If you're in a cart, a rental cart specifically, which has big bumpers all around the outside of it, you can be more opportunistic and use the rubbing is racing approach. Um, I may have used that once or twice in my karting career. Um, not very often, definitely not. Um, but if you're in iRacing, for example, and you're in the very fragile Formula 3, you can't just shove it up the inside because you'll ruin your race. So that's the first thing that really needs to be thought about. I've I've definitely seen you in a car just full-on use the side of another car as a brake. And just gone, well, the gap was there and we're both okay. No one's crashed. <laughs> but you can you can overcook it in a car and go side to side and be fine, except for no one likes you. It's about, and Brad will agree with me on this one, it's about knowing the marshals at the track and knowing what <laughs> they let you get away with and what they don't. Yeah. And a bit like with Hamilton and the off-tracks um, from Bahrain. Yeah it's legal until you get told to stop. And if you can get away with it, you can get away with it. But anyway, we're going too far into deep into karting. If we're talking about the behaviours of what you look for, if I'm defending, and if you look back to our iRacing at the weekend, I did a lot of defending. Um, it's about ushering somebody where you want them to go. So a lot of the time when I'm defending, I spend a lot of time in the middle of the track then kind of give them an indication of the direction I want them to go by which way I am disappearing off into. um, And then you can put them where you want them. When you're overtaking, you have to manage where the other car is going to go. And one of the things you get from overtaking is lots of overtaking isn't done in the snap. It isn't done there and then. Uh, I've come up to somebody, I'm overtaking them now. That doesn't really happen. A lot of overtaking is organic and you build it up over a number of laps to decide where the behaviours and the characteristics of the driver in front of you and what they do. Um, That's why 
at Nürburgring in the iRacing series, I was able to go around the outside of a lot of people around that last chicane because I understood the behaviours of what they were doing and how they wouldn't want to risk um, hitting me. I wouldn't want to risk hitting them. I know I can stick it around the outside. They know I can stick it around the outside because they've seen me do it. So you give room. Um, it's only when you get people who have very, very different levels of ability that <laughs> that's a little bit worrying. If I was doing that at the back of the grid for our races, for example, when I was in 30th, would I have gone around the outside? No, because there's, there's a chance that someone's just going to mash the brakes, lock them up and, and pin into the side of you. Um, we'll take a slight detour into positioning because I had a really interesting battle at the Nürburgring in the officials in the F3. Interesting you say about, you know, policing uh, and the marshalling at the track. The The damage model currently with the F3 is very self-policing. So like touching anybody is just p- instant death, isn't it? Any slight touch on the F3 at the moment, instant death. Um had a great battle into uh, into the turn one at the Nürburgring. And as you say, it was about five laps long. I sent you the clips because I was, I was so proud. And it was you're right, it was about putting the car in front into the position I wanted them to be in. And eventually I realised that I was struggling trying to make that move down the inside. No matter how big a gap there was, I just couldn't get it stopped. And then something in my head clicked and I went, ah, no, I, I need him to be there. So I made a lot of noises about being up the inside, got him to defend uh, and then there comes a point where he's going to commit to going onto the brakes. And just before that, I move out, take my normal racing line. I actually got him to spin on that corner, you know, uh, suddenly going, oh, where's he gone? You know, oh, he was up the inside. Oh, he's on the outside now. Oh, no. And then before he knows it, he's fluffed it and he's break down the inside. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, knowing when to make that move down the inside. I, I think a lot of people starting out who are aggressive don't take into account where the car is going to be alex so yes right now the car in front is leaving a gap but it's about working forward to go right if i break at the last possible second and make the apex where's that car then then gonna be um yeah and that that's i think that's something that that people struggle with and uh, there's this common misconception that the car defending as long as he's clear on the inside when he starts braking, he thinks, well, I'm safe. And anything beyond that is is a punt. So there's that maths. Yeah, so it's the, 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 I think the thing that is missed by a lot of people is how much room is supposed to be given by someone who's on the in, to, given to the person who is on the yeah. inside. So if somebody is having a lunge at me down at the hairpin at Nürburgring, I can give them, I give them, I tend to give a car's width and a bit and maybe car's width and the width of the wheels um, to get themselves stopped um, if I'm racing very closely. Again, depends on who I'm racing against. If I'm racing against Danny or Brad or Kyle, I can leave them the smallest possible gap because I know they will slot their car into that gap. If I'm racing Jeff, who's in his first iRacing race, I give him more room. Yeah, But nine times out of ten, I'll actually break earlier. He'll probably fly on ahead and go off the track. So it's... It's so much of it is psychology in understanding the people that are around you. So if yeah. I'm going to go on. No, no, I just I don't think people generally accept what you're saying there, which is even if a car is behind you down the inside, as soon as you sense that move coming, you don't just go to the apex because by the time you get to the apex, there's going to be a car there and, and so many people. And it's not helped by some of the stewarding in formula one so for example when albon 
and Hamilton came together into Lagos. To me, like Hamilton got the penalty and he didn't care because he'd already won the championship. Who cares? Um, but it was the second race, first race. It was Austria. It also happened at Interlagos. Oh, you mean Brazil? You mean Brazil? Brazil. You mean Brazil. What did okay, I say? Both. Yeah. So it happened the same way both. So anyway, at Interlagos, Albon's all the way on the outside. Hamilton is technically behind, but he's making an op- uh, an overtaking move. By the time Albon gets to the apex, like Hamilton's there, so. A car exists there, and Albon turns as if no car was going to overtake. So, so that's where I think a lot of people struggle, Matt. Is that no, no? Is I, I, we disagreed about this on this show? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm saying because number one, it's not an application, a strict application of the lane rule in Formula One. I know Brad's lane rule is very, very useful, but it's not the actual rules of Formula One. And that particular corner, the racing line goes out and comes back in, and Hamilton himself said. He was at fault for being in a place where he knew Albon was going to be. And he was just basically, it looked like he had a good run on him and wasn't able to get all the way back out of it before the apex was reached by both cars. So Hamilton was at fault, technically, um, because he lunged up the inside. However, one of the things that seems to be missed in F1, in karting, in sim racing, and any form of sport that involves overtaking is the person who is being overtaken. If somebody is coming at you and having a lunge, you see it coming. If you don't see it coming, you're blind and you're not looking at the you're looking at what's actually going on in the race. And what Albon should have done was gone, oh, there's a car launching itself up the inside of me. It's a big wide open corner there. He could easily have turned left, got the brakes on, if Lewis was going to miss the apex, which we don't know, he was. We don't know if he was or he wasn't going to. If he was, if he was going to miss the apex, he'd have flown straight on, and Albon would have undercut him. Um, if he was going to make the apex, he'd have been side by side, then going into a left-hand corner, to into two left-hand corners, and would have had the high ground. The there is so much responsibility to be taken for the person being overtaken, um, and that is lost because. It's a lot of the reason people get in a lot of accidents is they just don't see what's coming. And I think that's so important and it's crucial and it's lost. And F1 doesn't help. The the ambiguity of the rules and the inconsistency of the stewards make this problem worse. And it's just like in football refereeing, you know, when when, when they see, when kids see the professionals surrounding the referee and, and shouting at them and no action is taken, then that feeds down to the, the field to see the 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 feeder series, the feeder series, the, the grassroots football. And, and so, yes, I, I think, I think we're, we're all broadly actually agreeing, which is by, in the F1 stewarding, just saying, well, that's Hamilton's fault. He's punted him down the inside. That completely takes away the responsibility from the defending car. And as you've pointed out, you know, you're a seasoned carter and sim racer. Be, having someone come down the inside of you is part and parcel of being a racer and if every time someone makes a move you just drive to the apex and then you go oh well they were too far back whether or not that person gets a penalty or you get a penalty you're going to be in evolve, involved in a lot more accidents well it's like i often see it um when you're coming into a braking zone and it's usually at the beginning of the race and there are cars coming towards you in the braking zone and you can tell the guy who's braked late and the amount of times in a braking zone in early laps I've had to come off the brakes, completely compromise what is going to be my exit to the corner and potentially cost me a few positions 
to avoid getting hit. And that's the difference. It's that case of, do I want to lose this position or do I want to lose all my positions and probably the race? Yeah, so um, so really where we've fallen is, it is a, a sort of a dance between the two cars, between the attacking and the defending car. Um, but if you go for just every single time there's physically a gap between the car to the left, say, and the apex on the right, you're going to end up in a lot more accidents. And, you know, lo and behold, Ayrton Senna did end up in a lot of accidents. And something about Ayrton Senna that people used to say as well is he would give you a choice as to whether to have an accident or not. And this is often seen as a as a good quality somehow. Like, what a brave race. He puts himself in the situation where you either let him go or you have a crash. Is that a valid ta- tactic? It's an intimidation tactic. You know, you heard commentators talking about it for years. You know, the red helmet of Michael Schumacher, the yellow helmet of Ayrton Senna. When that comes behind you, that instills fear. It's a complete psych- It's a complete psychological thing, which is a case of, oh, crap, Senna's behind me. Is he going to make a lunge? Oh, he's just moved to the inside. And then you think about, are you going to have a crash or not? And then you go back to the response that I mentioned in my last comment about, do I lose this position or do I lose the rest? Well, and I think we could say that about Verstappen as well as he was coming up. Although what intrigues me about that is as he's gotten more successful, it seems like we see less of that from his driving. Yeah, because eventually he gets that point, Alex, where your risk reward settles down. When there's more on the line, when there's a championship on the line, you need consistency. So more reward than risk. When you're a young guy trying to just make your name in the sport, you can afford to have three or four anonymous races or for it to not go well but people remember that one win and that's the one they they play on the highlights reel max was fast and exciting that's why that's why max got picked over carlos Sainz. you know he got picked because he's exciting and, and being part of being exciting is going for moves that other people don't necessarily go for so maybe we can adapt the phrase if a gap exists and you no longer go for it you are being uh, a a a, a likely candidate to be consistent and win champion. There's no, it's not as catchy. There, there's Matt, there's no two ways about it. It's a catchy phrase and that's why it's persisted. If a high probability gap exists and you no longer think seriously to consider exploiting it, you should perhaps reconsider your current choice of hobby. How about that? Stick that's has got a ring to it. So in, in a good grid, Alex, where you think, you know, there's, there's racers who are racing hard, but fair. You would think both parties would see that move coming. Like you said, you would leave an appropriate amount of space where if they're going to make the apex, yes, they might make the apex and not hit you, but also you might have a good run around the outside and still hold the outside. If they don't make the apex, they hit you and it's their fault. You see it all the time. A guy looks like he's got a really good run, makes a dive for the apex. The guy on the inside gives him the room and then drives around the outside of him. You see it all the time. But the other thing when going back to talking about the psychology of of what Senna does when it comes down to going for any gap, it then comes down to guys like Martin Brundle, who didn't give him that gap. And in the lower formulas, they crashed quite a lot Yeah, because Brundle would not give Senna the space. Therefore, Senna didn't do those kind of moves on Brundle. And it's again the same. And there are people I know I won't do big dives on in in any of our races because they just won't have it. Kyle, Danny. Uh, actually, I wouldn't probably do a massive dive on on Danny, but Kyle is very forgiving. So Kyle would give 
would give that room and he's more of the gentleman driver as we've mentioned on many occasions <laughs> um but you know again it, am i going to have a massive lunge down the somewhat down the inside of someone i don't know and don't know their their prowess probably not i'll probably scout them for a lap or two yeah i, I think i accept your point though that that phrase has has done a a lot of damage and also accept your point that oh gosh if only at the highest form of motorsport we could have clear and consistent rules about 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 these kind of incidents like even even just some kind of guideline even just some kind of conversation where we go this is how we look at it because at the moment most racing fans think that once you start braking so long as there's no one alongside you when you brake you're entitled to just go for the apex and and I just don't think that's true and that's what causes a lot of these go for the gap type situations the only rule you can really because it's so difficult um to judge to give moves specific set rules and still have exciting racing because corners vary massively so the benefit going in isn't necessarily the same as the benefit coming out um so the the best rule is which they have in place is um you have a significant amount of your car alongside which in f1 counts as the front wing you must leave a car's width that is as close to the rules you can get and then you have to judge it on the speed and the corner and the turning and the snaps of oversteer and all the other factors and all those kind of things that come into it yeah. because it isn't black and white it's not like track limits no. you can't just go Here's two white lines. Stay the side. Stay on the inside of them. You can't just do that with overtaking because it it's not that simple. Are you sure you want to bring up track limits? Yeah, yeah. You, you risk getting into a lengthy discussion on that one. Um, I, I would say, and for me, like I, I love the way you've summed that up because just for my own personal sense of racing, I wouldn't try and get around or even take advantage of an inside gap if if I didn't think. I would be so far alongside, and this is just me, my, my conservative driving style, that if the person turned into me, we'd be basically banging both sets of wheels together. Because anything short of that, and I don't feel like I have, unless I know the driver or I see by their driving, they recognize where I am. I don't, I don't feel like I, I have, if they're not aware of me, they're going to turn into that apex. And if I put my car there, then I've just taken myself out of that race. What, how does that extend to you, Matt, for when if you appear side by side so they start braking you think you can brake better than them or you've got a better line or you've you're on a line that's got better traction and deep into the braking zone you're able to brake better later harder therefore you get alongside them i think that's what catches a lot of drivers out on the outside because they think they're clear you appear there it's still valid and they're like hey wait you was a lunge where did you come from it's like no it's not a lunge i'm just taking the corner better than you and i'm here now yeah, well, and and again, like that's just my specific rule for avoiding, you know, mm. race-ending catastrophe. <laughs> and 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 if you're driving with people who are very aware, then then you can then you can push that a little bit because you know they've seen you in the mirrors. But a lot of people, they get 300 meters from the apex, they check their mirrors, they lock their eyes on the apex, and they're not looking at anything but where that apex is. Once they're in their braking zone. So if you're trying to pass them there and they've not already seen you, they will just turn into you. Yeah. And you've also, in iRacing, a lot of the time, if you've got a fancy three monitor setup or you're in VR, you forget there's a lot of people there on a laptop screen or even the odd person 
using an Xbox controller as well. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, last word from you, Alex, then let's get it. Let's go. For that, for that reason, when you're talking about what you can see coming on. So, for example, in iRacing, you've got lots of different tools. You've got the virtual mirror. You've got mirrors on your car. Okay, let's say you've got a one monitor set up. You've probably got your FOV set so that you can't see your mirrors, but then you'll have the virtual mirror up. Um, and also, if you've got everything set up correctly, you've probably got your relative on, so you know if somebody's close to you, and you have something like Crew Chief or you use the, the in-game um, spotter, that tells you that people are on the inside. Um, in F1, they've got their mirrors. Okay, they're this big and difficult to look out of, but they've got a lot of spatial awareness, and they've also got a lot of, uh, they can hear things that are going on. In karting, it's more difficult. In karting, you do tend to surprise people because if you're driving along on your own and someone comes up, rocks up to you really, really quickly, it's very easy to be oblivious because you haven't got any mirrors. And you can't see behind you unless you're quite an aware person. But at the end of the day, if you're overtaking somebody who's just not aware of what's going on, you're lucky not to get in, get into a crash. And it is their fault. But the problem is, it's hard to prove it's not. It's hard to prove it's their fault um, because you can't prove awareness. If you want to increase awareness of when we've got a new episode of Missed Apex iRacing podcast, then make sure that you subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Search for Missed Apex and you can catch our iRacing podcast, W Series podcast when that's up and running again. And of course, our Formula One podcast. If you'd like to follow that on Twitter, it's at Missed Apex F1. Matt is at MattPT55 on Twitter. Alex is at Alex Van Jean. V-A-N-G-E-E-N. Search for that on YouTube as well to watch his streams. He's doing F1 type stuff at the moment. Thursday nights. I've moved my streams to now. My streams are all now Thursday nights. Oh, phew. Glad we mentioned that. People would have missed it. No, watch watch them back afterwards as well. Go back and watch all the live streams as if they were live and like and subscribe to his channel too. Oh, you can follow me at Spanners Ready. I mean, I'm the best one. Until next time, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. No, I don't I don't like it. I don't like the name. It's not snappy, is it? This is Missed Apex iRacing Podcast that we record from a shed on Thursdays. We used to record on Wednesdays, but now it's it's just not snappy. It's not even got a good anacronym. Missed Apex oh. iRacing Pod Murp. Murp. But it has got a good Twitter handle. Yeah, shh. Don't, don't shout about it too loudly. <laughs> at iRacing Podcast. Oh, I said follow the show at Missed Apex F1, didn't I? Whoops. Sorry, yeah. Getting confused what pod I'm on. All right, cool. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.